0: Hey guys, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 20 of the Unknown Friends Book Review Podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and I am delighted you've joined me today. If you're new here, thank you so much for giving the podcast a try today, and if you're old here, or maybe I should say if you have listened to the podcast before, then thank you for coming back and tuning in again this week. I hope everyone had a great Memorial weekend, maybe even took off from work to spend some time with your family and friends, and to celebrate those who have served in our armed forces. I will say I have personally felt a a deeper appreciation for the military since the time about a year ago when I did in-depth research into various aspects of World War II for my stage play As Ever Sam. I just learned so much in that process and was left absolutely astounded at the bravery and resourcefulness of of so many who fought in the war. And it was just an honor to write a drama inspired by those real people and events. And... I know I wasn't the only one who was moved by the experience. In fact, on the Kitty Wham Productions YouTube channel, we just posted a video in which the cast of As Ever Sam discusses what a privilege and what a learning experience it was to portray scenes from World War II. Um, I will link to that video in this episode's description in case you're interested in hearing the actor's thoughts. But anyway... On to today's review. As promised, I am discussing today the short novel I, Juan de Pareja, written by Elizabeth Borton de Trevino. Now, you very well may not have heard of this book or not know much about it. I, I think I had heard the title before, but I knew nothing more until a couple months ago. A classmate of mine from Hillsdale College, my alma mater, ...recommended that I look into the works of Elizabeth Borton de Trevino, and I, Juan de Pareja, is her most famous work. So it's a children's novel, and it won the Newbery Medal in 1966. Um, The Newbery, of course, being one of the most prestigious awards for children's literature in America... Incidentally, the only other Newbery winner I have reviewed so far on the podcast was Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of NIMH by Robert C. O'Brien, which we covered a couple months ago in episode 11 of this season. So who is Elizabeth Borton de Trevino? Well, she was born Mary Elizabeth Victoria Borton in 1904 in Southern California, And from a very young age, her parents encouraged her in her love of the arts and literature specifically. Her father, Fred Borton, was an attorney, although as a younger man, he had written and published some poetry and short stories. And both he and Elizabeth's mother loved reading and instilled that love in Elizabeth. She started writing very young. She actually had a poem published when she was eight years old, I think. And her dream was always to become a writer when she grew up. So after high school, she attended Bakersfield College in her hometown for two years, and then was able to transfer to Stanford University, where she majored in Latin American history and graduated with honors in 1925. And for the next 10 years or so, she then worked as a reporter for the Boston Herald, and she specialized as a performing arts reviewer. Now, this job, of course, meant that she traveled quite a bit. She spent some time in Hollywood, for instance, interviewing celebrities there. But then in the 1930s, she was on assignment in Mexico, and she met Luis Trevino Gomez, who was her escort and interpreter. And... Well, they seemed to like each other a lot because they got married in 1935, at which point Elizabeth moved to Mexico, to her husband's hometown, and although they moved a couple of times in later years to different cities, they remained in Mexico, and Elizabeth continued living there even after her husband's death in 1988. Now, she lived for 13 more years after her husband, Luis, passed, and she died in 2001 at the age of 97. So her life nearly touched three centuries. If she had been born just a few years earlier, she might have been alive in the 19th century through the 20th and into the 21st. But as it was, 97 years from 1904 to 2001 is still quite impressive. Now, as far as her writing career... That got seriously underway before she was even married. Of course, she was a reporter after college, but she also got into fiction writing in her 20s. Her first work of children's literature was published in 1931 and was titled Pollyanna in Hollywood. And yes, this was a sequel to Eleanor Porter's Pollyanna novels. Now, you may know this, but I didn't. So Eleanor Porter wrote Pollyanna and its sequel, Pollyanna Grows Up, but then after Porter's death in 1920, several other authors were hired at various times to continue the franchise, and Elizabeth Borton was one of them. Harriet Loomis Smith was actually the first writer to continue the series, but then Elizabeth wrote further sequels in the 1930s and after. So this was her entrance into children's literature, and throughout her life, she wrote several standalone novels for kids and teens as well, of which I, Juan de Pareja, is probably her most famous. Now, she did also write some books for adults, including a couple memoirs of her life as an American woman whose marriage brought her into a traditional Mexican family, um, I haven't yet, but I would love to read her memoirs. They they sound fascinating. Now, her novel, I, Juan de Pareja, which won the 1966 Newbery Medal, was published in 1965 when Elizabeth Borton was 60 years old. Now, this was a period in which she wrote a lot of historical fiction, and I, Juan de Pareja, was inspired by real historical figures and events. Elizabeth and her husband had two sons, and the older one was interested in art, and he told his mother about the 17th century Spanish artist, Diego Velázquez, and his slave, Juan de Pareja, who also eventually became a painter. While we don't know a lot of details about these two men, What is known is intriguing and makes you wonder about the missing pieces in their story. Uh, One of Velázquez's most famous paintings is actually a portrait of his slave, Juan. And you should look up a picture of it, by the way. It is definitely worth seeing. And when Elizabeth Borton saw this painting and heard the story of Juan de Pareja and his master, Velázquez, she wanted to write a novel about these two artists and their relationship. And so that is exactly what she did. So it's based on real people, and the main events of the novel are historically accurate, but of course she had to creatively supply a lot of additional material that we just don't have any information about. But she does a beautiful job blending facts and speculation and creating from that combination a captivating and heartfelt story. So Juan de Pareja is obviously the hero of the novel, the protagonist, and he narrates the whole story from his perspective. So we get to follow along as he tells the story of nearly his whole life, Uh, He doesn't take it through quite to the end, but we do witness his relationship with his master, Diego Velazquez, from its beginning to its end. So, in the novel, Juan de Pareja is a half African slave born in Spain, in Seville. His mother dies when Juan is five years old, and from then on he serves as a page boy to a kind, though somewhat capricious Spanish lady, Doña Emilia de Silva, whom his mother had served before him. Doña Emilia does teach Juan to read, for which he is extremely thankful later in life. Um, But Juan does not stay with this mistress for very many years. Both she and his master, her husband, fall ill and pass away. And Juan then becomes the property of Doña Emilia's nephew, the painter, Diego Velázquez. But it takes a journey for Juan to get to the home of Velázquez, and the man assigned to take Juan there is not a good man at all. He is cruel, and really the worst treatment Juan ever experiences as a slave is when he's in the power of this man, Don Carmelo. A compassionate priest does take pity on Juan and and he does what he can to help him. And Juan bravely takes initiative himself to try to escape from Don Carmelo, actually. Um, But I won't go into too many details of that part of his life. Despite the mistreatment he received from Don Carmelo, Juan finally makes it to his new home as the slave of Diego Velázquez, and his new master proves to be a very good man. Velázquez is quiet and thoughtful and perceptive, and while he doesn't display a lot of emotion or anything, he is kind and he's honest. Um, And of course, Velázquez is also a painter, a young painter when Juan joins his household, but very skilled already. And in time, he gains apprentices and soon gets the notice of extremely important people in Spain and across Europe. Velázquez is commissioned to paint a portrait of the king of Spain, and from then on he is regarded as one of the leading portrait artists of the time. He is later invited to paint the portrait of the pope in Italy and various other important officials, princes and princesses, and and so on. Um, Velázquez Very highly respected. And Juan serves as his assistant. So, from the time he first becomes Diego Velazquez's slave, he works in his art studio. He prepares canvases and paints, he cleans tools, he organizes, he does every little thing Velazquez needs him to do in the studio. And Juan loves it, honestly. His new master is. Reserved, yes, but he's gentle. And his art fascinates Juan. Juan just loves watching him work um, and helping him. And in time, in fact, Juan himself begins to want to learn how to paint. But in Spain in the 17th century, slaves were forbidden from practicing the fine arts. It would literally be illegal for Juan to paint. So he resists the desire for a while, but eventually it is, it is so strong that he begins trying to paint in secret. He tries to imitate what he has observed in Velasquez, and while of course Juan is not immediately a great artist, in time he improves, and he feels that maybe he could be a painter himself if he didn't have to keep his efforts a secret. And he's so tender-hearted that he's facing a terrible dilemma. It's a crisis. Because his conscience makes him believe that he's not only breaking the law by painting in secret, but he feels it must also be a sin against God since it's against the law. So this is really even a crisis of faith. Juan is Catholic and feels like he should confess what he's doing to a priest, and yet he loves his art so much, he, he also feels like he can't give it up. And so I won't tell you how this crisis resolves, of course, but Juan desperately needs input. He needs to know whether what he's doing is really wrong or right. He needs to be able to reconcile his faith and his art. And, and that issue is one of the key questions that the novel must untangle. But, of course, the book isn't all about painting. Um, We also just get to know Diego Velázquez and his family. He has a wife and two daughters, and we learn about their lives. Uh, We get to know Velázquez's various apprentices throughout the years, and how they and Juan do or do not get along. And, of course, we follow Juan's own personal life, his faith, his eventual marriage, But the heart of the novel really is the relationship between slave and master, Juan and The Last Case. And their relationship transcends the slave-master partnership in the end. They truly become friends. So, as you might expect, the themes of the novel revolve around slavery and freedom, yes, to some extent, But much more so, the book is really about friendship and art and faith. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Both Juan de Pareja and Diego Velázquez are refreshing characters. They have two very different personalities, but it's wonderful to see how well they work together and, and teach each other, how loved Juan is by the Velázquez family, despite his status as a slave, And in in the context of the early 17th century, it is inspiring to see how Juan dealt with the reality of being a slave. Because he had a kind master, and because he had faith in God that enabled him to live for something beyond this present life, he didn't hate being a slave. He, He didn't let his status ruin his life. He can't do anything to change the fact that he's a slave, so he leans into that reality instead of fighting it. He serves wholeheartedly, and that allows him to thrive in life despite not being a free man. He recognizes that nobody's life is perfect, whether slave or free. Everyone faces difficulties. Everyone has some circumstance in their life which... Seems limiting, which maybe isn't what they would choose for themselves. So, why should he be miserable because of his status as a slave, when really his life is, is pretty good serving Velazquez? And of course, I would never make light of slavery, especially situations of slaves that were so much, so much worse than Juan de Pareja's. But in his context, I really love his perspective. It makes the book about so much more than just slavery or freedom, even though, yes, its themes apply to that specific scenario. But it speaks to all of us, no matter what our situation is, because none of us will ever have a quote-unquote perfect life. But that shouldn't stop us from finding contentment and joy and purpose wherever we find ourselves. So I really loved the questions Elizabeth Borton de Trevino raises in this novel and the answers she provides. Where can hope and happiness be found? Not in our circumstances, but in our faith, first and foremost, faith in God. And secondly, in good relationships. And then thirdly, in what you might call vocation. I want to quickly return to the role of art in this novel. As I described, Juan has a crisis of conscience when he feels that his love of art and his faith are in conflict. And of course, we're not going into how that gets resolved, but ultimately, Elizabeth Borton does communicate that work is a good thing and can give us purpose in life, and that art specifically Is an amazing way to convey truth and beauty to others. Diego Velazquez gives a sort of mini philosophy of art statement in the novel, which intrigues me. And while Elizabeth Borton doesn't take us too deep into that philosophy, she presents just enough to give us a lot of food for thought. So the historical Diego Velazquez painted realistically. And in some sense, simply, um, he didn't mind painting very down-to-earth subjects. He didn't want to falsely beautify or embellish the things and people he painted. Um, he he reportedly said once, "I would rather be the first painter of common things than second in higher art." Interesting sentiment. Um, and in Elizabeth Borton's novel, she has him say. Art should be truth, and truth, unadorned, unsentimentalized, is beauty. So art should be truth, and truth is beauty. This really is a whole philosophy of art, almost a philosophy of life, in just a few words. Um, And Elizabeth Borton does not delve into all the implications and nuances of this, and I'm sure it could get complicated the more you pursue it, but I like the basic concept, the the core of this philosophy. Art should be truth, and truth is beauty. Now, next week, we will be looking at another book featuring an artist and a philosophy of art, which is a bit different from the one found in I, Juan de Pareja, but uh, more on that later. The long and short of it is... I appreciate this philosophy of art, and as a whole, I really enjoyed Elizabeth Borton's novel. It is a pretty easy read, it's not long, and it is totally appropriate for middle school kids and older. I think it would make a great family read-aloud. There's lots to discuss about art and truth and beauty, as well as about conscience and contentment and friendship, and faith. It's a very wholesome read, refreshingly innocent, and Juan is just such a a pure-hearted character. It's impossible not to like him and root for him. So I definitely recommend it, especially if you are looking for something for your kids to read, or something to read with them, but also if you are an adult, and you enjoy an occasional dose of wholesome children's literature like I do. Um, In that case, by all means, give this novel a try. So, I hope this review of I, Juan de Pareja, has been helpful. And next week, we will be looking at a very different book, but one that also explores art, beauty, and truth. Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, will be our subject in episode 21. This is a strange book, but it is a classic for a reason. And so I do hope you will tune into our discussion next Wednesday. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, leave a star rating, and if you have the time to go the extra mile, it would mean a ton if you'd write a quick review. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, tell your book-loving friends about the podcast so that they can get in on all the fun too. If you're interested in getting bonus Unknown Friends content, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com unknownfriends, and there you'll learn about the different ways you can become a member of the Unknown Friends Patreon community and get access to things like monthly bonus episodes and even free books. So check out that link in the episode description. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions, where you can learn more about me and my writing at kittywhamproductions.com. And thank you so much for listening today.